Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast presented by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. And here from the JBC is the one and only Drew Klein. Merry Christmas to you, Drew. Same to you, you heathen. (laughs) You know, I was inspired when Governor Sununu at his presser this week wished us all a happy Festivus. (laughs) That was absolutely great. But I was annoyed when I asked him a question and said I wanted to start with the feats of strength. He was not prepared. (laughs) Instead, as usual, all we got was the airing of the grievances, which is kind of par for the course. That's the ritual. So coming up. That's what this podcast is. (laughs) No kidding. You're absolutely right. Uh, So uh, coming up, we uh, you saw the story about Harry Reid badmouthing New Hampshire First of the Nation again. The reporter who sat down and talked to Harry Reid chatted with us. We've got some great insights. That's coming up in a few minutes. But before we get to good old-fashioned partisan politics and rumors that Chris Christie might run for president again, really, dude? Oh, my gosh, and all that stuff. But I think you'll understand, Drew, why some of us are confused about what's going on in New Hampshire with Governor Sununu, Republicans, et cetera, because on the one hand, it was a big win for Sununu, that out of the 12 states who are supposed to join the transportation and climate initiative, this cap and invest, as they call it, or cap and tax system, out of the 12, only three, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, bothered to get in, plus Washington, D.C. When, you remember when Sununu got out a year ago, he was being trashed for being anti-climate, mm-hmm. and this is terrible, and he's going to be the outlier. Well, no, it turns out that Charlie Baker is the outlier. But the same guy who said we don't want to make suburbanites and rural voter drivers in New Hampshire pay for Boston's rail system is going to spend 5.4 million bucks to study a choo-choo train from Manchester to Lowell. Am I understanding this right? I suppose so. Now look, they're both bad policies. They're both bad ideas. One of the key differences is the transportation and climate initiative is really just a tax. Like it, it, it's, it's not got a constituency in New Hampshire. It is a, it is a tax that's going to make everybody pay a lot more for gas. And then the money goes to, you know, po- projects that environmentalists will control. Um, the commuter rail has a constituency in New Hampshire. There are businesses in Manchester and Nashua in particular that really, really want this. They, um, they are under the belief that it will help spur economic growth in those cities. And so it's a different political animal in the state, mm-hmm. um, even though they're both bad ideas and they're both rude dogs. <laughs> okay, so catch me up on this because I, I have been mocking this desperate desire to invest trillions of American dollars into the cutting edge technology of the 19th century for years. What's the story of commuter rail choo-choo trains in New Hampshire politics? Oh, gosh. Well, it goes back a very long time. I mean, we won't get into the entire history of it. But I mean, for decades, there has been a consistency that it's it's um, two groups, I think, largely. So one is um, sort of the left. Uh, well, you could say three groups. One is environmentalists who mm-hmm. think that you know, automobiles are bad. One is businesses uh, in the major cities in the state that want this because they think it's going to have help people commute from Boston to Manchester and Nashua. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Then, my, my microphone's not working. I, it sounded like you said that they want to build trains so people can go from living yes. in Boston to their job in Manchester. That is the argument. Yeah. And um, did we legalize it, pot? And I didn't know it. <laughs> Well, every other state around us has it, so maybe. But this goes way back. I mean, this is just part of the, you know, there's this. this and then there's the third group is the sort of trained fetishists. It's the people who 
they just love rail. They've been to Europe when they were in college or whatever, and, and they like trains and they think trains are great. And they think to be a world-class place, you have to have trains because it's just, it's a cultural thing. So those are the, basically the three groups. And so they're, but they're, they're a minority. And by that, I mean, whenever you do a poll in New Hampshire and you just ask, Hey, do you want commuter rail? People will say, yeah, it'll be huge numbers. But when you ask, do you want to pay for commuter rail? They say no. <laughs> so um, there really isn't a big constituency for it. It's a bunch of smaller groups. And the reason is because most people like their cars, right? They just, the, people don't want to be trapped in a train. Um, do you like the idea of it? I look, I spent some time after college in Europe. I love taking the train. It's romantic. I get it. I'm not against trains, but government subsidizing um, what will be the last government report had it just over 200, 250 million, but we know it'd be double that. It'll be $500 million or more to build a commuter rail line when ridership has been going down um, for, mm -hmm. for years, transit ridership's going, going down. So it, COVID alone, right? I mean, if you th just think of a worst possible timing to study a new rail line mm -hmm. is when mass transit ridership has fallen by 50% in the United States. Commuter rail ridership in 2020 has fallen by 62%. And that's just because of COVID. That's bringing already low numbers down farther. So commuter rail has gone up a little bit in the last decade but you know it's kind of leveled off nationally in the last few years. But the most important metric is Boston. So the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority ridership for commuter rail has fallen by 11% from 2012 to 2018. It just keeps going down. And a major driver of that is people have more options. <laughs> right. There are, uh, you know, transit. Well, well uh, let me interrupt there before we get to what the future yeah. could look like. I just want to make sure that people understand what we're talking about. First of all, we're talking about a stinking train. It's a thing that goes from literally one place to another place. So that's a disaster. Fixed point transportation stinks because people have lives and you rarely do just one thing, you know, while you're out. Second thing is it's expensive. The price tag I've seen, Drew, is an estimated quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million. What do you and I know for a fact about the cost of any rail project? No, it's going to be much, much higher. Of course it is. California's magic bullet train was supposed to be like whatever, $12.43. They stopped at $100 billion. It's going to be at least twice whatever you're talking about. So you're talking about half a billion dollars for this. And then as you just pointed out, People just don't use it. And so I'm just lo I'm looking at Sununu, who so wisely pointed out in his press conference that uh, the problem with the transportation climate uh, system is that it assumed that people were going to use the roads now the same way they did before COVID. And they're just not going to. The world's changed. They're just not going to, you know, even after COVID's gone, you're never going to see the commuting patterns we saw before because people have realized you can do different things. But then he says, here's $5.4 million to study a choo-choo train. I don't get it. Well, I don't get it either. But again, there are different constituencies. So um, there is a small demand in the business community for commuter rail project. And this is what all industry? federal money. What industry and I'm not wants? defending the project. It's a bad project. I'm just saying there could be way, the way you, you would compartmentalize this would be to say, look, it's a, it's it's spending federal money to study ah. um you know, engineering money, yes. of, a, of a rail thing. We already have committed in the budget, the money, it's already there. Just go ahead and spend it. Look, I think it's a bad idea and we shouldn't be doing it. Um, it's wasting other people's money 
but it's still wasting money. Okay, and so and, to the people who say, well, uh, Drew Klein, you right-wing, free market, radical, we have to do something because of global whatever, 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 whatever. What would you say to them about the future? One of the main drivers of pushing commuter rail are people who want to force others to live the way they think they should live. Commuter rail does that. It says the government will create a line between these two points or these four or five points along a, a straight path, and it will build communities along that route. So we will make you live in dense communities. We will build that up. We will zone it so that we'll, we'll encourage people to live there and we'll, um, will create this nice fantasy where people will get out of their cars and then they'll ride the train, they'll commute from their house that's right along the track to work, which is right along the track. And it's this desire to plan other people's lives for them. And that drives so much of this rail nonsense when what people really want is to be able to go where they want, when they want, without anybody telling them that. <laughs> and you need, you need the freedom to go to the dry cleaners and go pick up the kids and go to the grocery store and do all those other things. And cars do that in a way that trains just never will. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, services like Uber and Lyft have become so popular because you can now do those things without owning a car. And pretty soon we are going to have, um, as we talked about in a, a, a previous podcast, electric vehicles, dominating the market. So gas powered internal combustion engines are on the way out. The technology is already here. It's being developed by literally hundreds of electric vehicle startup companies. Some of them will survive and some of them will figure out how to make this stuff cheaper. And we're on the way to getting rid of internal combustion engines. It is happening now. They are mm -hmm. dying. We are at the stage where, you know, Henry Ford is looking at guys driving wagons by on horseback and laughing, right? That that's kind of where we are. And when you combine that with the automated um, driving cars, self-driving cars, um, there is no need for trains anymore. They're obsolete already. They've been obsolete for a century, but now they're becoming more obsolete. And the idea that we're going to spend, uh, you know, five hundred million dollars, whatever it ends up being, building a rail line between Boston and Manchester when we are on the cusp of solving this issue through innovation is just insane. There's no reason to do it. It's a gargantuan waste of money. But how do you really feel about it, Drew Klein? I think that's what we all really want to know. Uh, I, look, I agree with you completely. And the choo-choo train kooks are just as insane as the other kookery. And the, this fantasy of you know windmill-powered trains guiding us into the future is just complete and utter nonsense. Also speaking of nonsense, the nonsense that Nevada is going to knock New Hampshire out of the uh, first uh, slot in the presidential races, not going to happen. We talk about it next here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Well, as we say here in New Hampshire, every day is election day. And so we're always thinking about the next presidential election. And so when the news hit that uh, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada was talking again about resting the First of the Nation primary from our cold, dead fingers. We had to talk about it. Mark Baraback wrote the piece for the LA Times that caused so much consternation here in the Granite State. Mark, thanks for joining us for the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Thank you for having me. We don't often have people from California on the podcast because, you know, we have standards. But mm. uh, we made an exception in your case. So tell us 
what's going on in uh, in uh, Reed Harry Reed's mind and why New Hampshire people should be nervous. Well, uh, a little bit of history. Uh, Nevada managed to elbow its way forward on the calendar, uh, going third starting in 2008, thanks in large part to Harry Reid. He was sent majority leader at the time. He is, of course, retired, but still very much a, a, a force to be reckoned with in Nevada politics. And his argument, uh, and this is going to sound familiar, and, and I'm don't, don't hold it against me. I'm just repeating what people say that, you know, why should Iowa, New Hampshire, too small, quote unquote, uh, white rural states have so much say and, and, and the West needed, needed a larger voice. And so it was a package deal. You got New Hampshire, excuse me, you got Nevada as the, uh, uh, the second caucus coming right after Iowa and after the New Hampshire primary. And they also added South Carolina to give uh, a Southern flavor and a Southern voice to the process. And so all was well and all was good until the last uh, couple go rounds and there were some problems. I, I, I know you're quite familiar with them in uh, New Hampshire, in particular the last Iowa caucus turned into a real fiasco. And you know, I mean, Harry Reid has been beating the drums for a long time, again, making that argument that those states are unrepresentative. And so I had a chat with him last week and he brought it up again. And you know, this time he feels he's got uh, a couple allies. Uh, Joe Biden, who at the moment, as I said in the story, has some larger concerns like putting together his administration and protecting uh, representative democracy in this country. You know, primary calendar is probably not a huge priority, but he probably has no love lost for Iowa or with all due respect, New Hampshire. He tanked in both places before going on finishing a not very strong, but still strong enough second in, in Nevada, which then was the springboard in South Carolina where he pretty much wrapped up the nomination. So figures he has an ally in Biden and figures he has an ally, although heaven forbid she ever discussed the prospect of, of, of possibly running for president in 2024 or, or beyond in Kamala Harris, who probably would not mind having the first contest starting in uh, uh, Nevada. So long answer, but you know, it's a long way from here to there, but you know, Harry Reid's gonna push this and his feeling is that he's gonna have some sympathetic ears in the White House and on the DNC, on the Democratic National Committee, which is the place that the rules are made. So here's how it looks from New Hampshire. We are, or we were the New England Patriots of the primaries until this season when the wheels came off for the Pats. And uh, so it's just people are jealous of New Hampshire's success. New Hampshire's done it well. New Hampshire's kept the spot. Nobody can touch them. And this is just more grousing from the second place because the if you're if you're not the lead dog the view don't change mark bareback sure and i'm 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 going to as a a as as a, a an abiding uh, patriots hater and a fan of the raiders and the 49ers I'll, I'll i'll ignore that thing but sure absolutely i mean everyone wants to be first um i've taken a lot of slings and arrow over the years uh uh defending iowa and new hampshire from folks here in california i mean i i you know california is my uh my home. It's where I was born. It's where I'll die if I have my way. I love California, but I've gone on TV and radio and given interviews where I've defended Iowa and New Hampshire. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, you could talk about the breakdown I'm talking about in Iowa, but I think the folks there are very earnest. They take it very, very seriously. I think it's good to start in a small state and not in a place like California, which would, which would effectively uh, uh, price so many candidates out. So, you know, I, I'm a defender of Iowa and New Hampshire. I want to be clear, I, I don't have any stake in this. I mean, I'll, I'll show up in Iowa or New Hampshire, which I have for 
decades now I'll show up in Nevada where, wherever they, they run this thing. But, um, you know, uh, you're right. Other places are jealous. Everyone wants to be number one. That's the benefit Iowa and, and New Hampshire has had all these years. Well, I think we can go back uh, years. This has been Harry Reid's big push for a very long time to, to find a way to um, crowbar New Hampshire or Iowa or both preferably out of the First Nation status. He wants it for Nevada. I mean, five years ago, he said that um, New Hampshire shouldn't be first because there are no minorities there and nobody lives there. He's just, he's going on this um, just sort of easy to dunk on New Hampshire for uh, stereotype reasons. And, you know, it, it works with certain audiences. I think after um, 2020, you can make a, a really strong case that Iowa shouldn't have anything to do with presidential nominating any longer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to, I have to stop right there. Yeah. I think that's unfair, Drew. Iowa should not be allowed to participate in any elections ever again. That's what should happen to Iowa. <laughs> I wouldn't go, wouldn't go that far. They are U.S. citizens, but um, the debacle there was um, something that never happens in New Hampshire because we run a really good system here. And um, look, if you're going to make the case that New Hampshire and Iowa combined going first uh, is too white and unrepresentative, then the obvious um, conclusion is, or, or decision to make, is that Iowa no longer gets its caucus. It just, it makes no sense. It's unrepresentative. The caucus system's crazy. It's too complex to understand. And they have repeatedly botched it. This year wasn't the first time. So having a caucus state like Nevada go, or Nevada, go right after New Hampshire, I think makes a lot of sense. You can make a really strong case for that. Um, you know, there, when I've been talking about this in New Hampshire, I would get old hands really mad at me because they would make the case that, look, the I, Iowa and New Hampshire are a team. We do it together. We've always done it together. We have each other's backs, and that's the only way we've preserved it. And I think that is in the past. I don't think that is sustainable any longer. Um, the political and, and cultural pressure to have a um, more uh, racially and ethically diverse state go higher up in the process is just too strong. It, it's going to have to knock one of the two states off. And it doesn't make any sense to knock New Hampshire off because uh, as Mark said, um, we do it extremely well here. We do give um, lesser funded, lesser known candidates a real shot. And and that matters. And, and, and this is a, another example. I mean, Mark's a great example of journalists who have no dog in the fight, who come here and report on it and see how it works and then become defenders. This goes back decades. I mean, you can get all the big names in American political journalism. Uh, most of them will, will defend the primary and talk about the virtues of it. And because um, and, and, they can see objectively, it really works. So um, that's a long way of saying uh, Harry Reid is is going to try to push this, and he's got allies in the Democratic Party that are going to try to push this. And New Hampshire has to realize that we no longer are holding onto the same life raft with Iowa. It, it's time to swim on our own. And I don't, I don't think we can defend the primary any longer by tying ourselves to Iowa. And if I could, if I could jump in and say, and, and kind of bring this full circle, I think what Drew just says is reflective. I mean, look, I, 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 I'm not an expert. I, I play one in the newspaper, but um, you asked how nervous New Hampshire would be. I would say not terribly because, you know, 
uh, it's New Hampshire and there's Bill Gardner and all the things you know about. If I was Iowa, I'd be very, very nervous for reasons that, that, that Drew just stated. I think that, that uh, uh, partnership is breaking down and it should be said, folks in Iowa, I mean, there was that debacle that we've talked about in, in February, and I don't think they did themselves any favors. They, uh, the Iowa Democratic Party put out an autopsy, uh, an after-action report, if you will, explaining what went wrong and totally threw the DNC under the bus. And I can yep. tell you from conversations I've had with folks, the DNC is aware of that. They're not happy about it. So if anyone needs to be worried, um, I would be worried. I, I think I think Iowa has, has good reasons to be concerned. And I'm, I'm not going to make any predictions because I'm smart enough to know. I'm not smart enough to know, but I would not be surprised <laughs> if, if the ending, if what we end up with is some combination of, of Nevada and New Hampshire, whether that was a New Hampshire primary followed by a, a Nevada primary, because I know the whole eight-day rule and, and, and New Hampshire going first, or right. if Harry Reid were to bend and say, okay, we'd be fine with the caucus, maybe you start with the Nevada caucus, then go to uh, a New Hampshire primary. So I'm going to pick up, first of all, you think the DNC's mad. Think about how mad Rick Santorum is. The guy wins the Iowa primary and nobody finds out until after South Carolina. So that's yet yeah. another reason why Iowans should not be allowed to vote. I'm sorry. Let's re we can fix this in the Constitution. Second thing is, and we want to wrap up with this, Mark, is you mentioned the caucuses. It appears from the outside that the push from deep blue quarters inside the Democratic coalition towards more direct democracy means that caucuses just aren't going to survive. I mean, I, I start, you start leaking at what, what can you throw the, you know, Sanders AOC wing of the party that won't do any damage. One thing that you can throw them very easily is just say, you know what, you're right. Caucuses aren't the voice of the people and get rid of them. Do you think that the caucus system can survive? Would the uh, DNC representatives from California, et cetera, would they stand by for, you know, this old fashioned, you know, much maligned system staying around? Well, if it's part of a deal, part of a package, part of a negotiation, I mean, you're right. Caucuses have been on the way out. I, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I know there were significantly fewer in 2020 than there were in years past, which was, as you suggest, a concession to uh, the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the party, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things Harry Reid said in his conversation with me was in so, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he's not going to fall on his sword. He's not going to jeopardize New Hampshire, excuse me, Nevada's number three slot on the counter by insisting they go absolutely first, which, you know, Harry Reid's been in a lot of negotiations. He didn't get where he was by being doctrinaire hardline. Could I see some sort of carve out, if you will, where they say, okay, we'll let Nevada do a caucus if it means moving things forward and keeping New Hampshire where it is and, and you know, icing Iowa. So again, no predictions, but you know, uh, all sorts of things happen when, when folks start cutting deals and compromising and, you know, taking that half loaf. And I think, you know, if the half loaf was an Iowa caucus, excuse me, Nevada caucus that went first, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Harry Reid and, and Nevada folks accept that if, if, if the DNC and others would go along. Yeah, I think that would make some sense for them. I, but Graham's right. Caucuses are dumb. Caucuses just should go away. They're not, they're, they're not representative. They're crazy, especially Iowa's. But in Nevada has a caucus. So if Nevada keeps its caucus and it goes close to New Hampshire, um, you know, Bill Gardner, I don't know what he would do, but he's generally viewed a caucus as not a similar contest. Right. But if there were five states that had caucuses, <laughs> then that may change. But, um, but I think the caucus model is weird. And if, if Nevada goes to, if it, get, if it were to get rid of its caucus, 
um, and go to a primary, mm. then New Hampshire would obviously not allow it to go first. Look, gentlemen, there's a, a compromise here that we can all agree on. We keep the caucus, but lose Iowa. That's the solution. Get rid of Iowa. And then I don't care what else you keep. Mark Bearback with the LA Times. Thanks for joining us here at the New Hampshire Journal. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So how confident are you feeling about New Hampshire being in first place in 2024? Totally. Yeah, me too. I mean, Bill how, Gardner is going to live forever, and he's going to make sure that, that, that we never go second. How confident? Really, I mean, we, ha we have a law. Yeah. And you, whether it's Bill there um, or somebody else, um, New Hampshire will be the first primary. It, it just will be. And, you know, the, there is value in winning the New Hampshire primary. Candidates understand that. And they will keep coming as long as there's value in winning it. Mm -hmm. What is more concerning to me is not Harry Reid. It's Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden coming in a dismal, what was it, fifth place in 2020? Mm -hmm. Yep. And and going on to win the nomination. That is much more of a threat to the New Hampshire primary than Harry Reid, because that says to potential candidates in the future, wow, New Hampshire really isn't that important. I don't necessarily have to go there. Now, I think this is a one-off, I think because of Biden's particular strengths and weaknesses, um, but it, that would concern me a lot more is the way that other candidates perceive New Hampshire after Biden going on to win the nomination and the presidency. Well, it won't matter because uh, in 2024, when President Kamala Harris is here running for her first elected term in office, like LBJ in 1964, New Hampshire will Democrats will greet her with open arms and there won't be a contested primary and that'll solve that problem. So there you go. But the Republican primary is going to be wild. <laughs> What, how many people are going to run against Trump again? Didn't they learn their lesson last time? I don't understand. Uh, I, I don't know, but it's going to be, it's whatever it happens to be, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be wild. Uh, I predict that uh, Donald Trump will not run for president in 2024 uh, and that the Republican primary will absolutely be wild. I agree. But I would not bet $3 that Joe Biden will be running for re-election in 2024. No, no, I don't not, no, no, see that no, happening. Not, I, I wouldn't all. bet. No, I wouldn't bet that either. But whatever happens, we will be covering it at New Hampshire Journal. You can find us at nhjournal.com and sign up for our daily newsletter. And if you're looking for analysis of the economics, the facts, the theory, the science behind what's going on, you go to the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Where can we find that on the web? jbartlett.org. Make sure you go there and you sign up for our newsletter, The Broadside, and we will send you weekly emails, um, uh, free market takes on New Hampshire's news, and it's all good stuff, although we're probably not going to send one out this week for Christmas week, so you'll get them next week. Well, Drew, I haven't wished you a Merry Christmas. That's all. Well, Just Merry noting Christmas. that fact. Just noting the fact oh, okay. that I have not, in fact, done so. And No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Living the good life. And to everyone who listens to New Hampshire Journal, it's been a crazy year for New Hampshire Journal. We had a lot of fun this year, and we're going to have a uh, talk about that some in next week's uh, podcast and what's coming up next. But uh, to everyone, thanks so much for listening. He's Drew Klein. I am Michael Graham. Hey.